So this is the time where um, normally I'd ask for little boys and little girls to, to give a memory verse, but I'm, I've, I've been encouraged to ask the little girls who happen to have been attending, I think there's a bunch of little girls, I think 47 or 50 of them are attending a, uh, a Bible study that has to do with Proverbs. So I was going to give an opportunity, oh, look at that, for one of the little girls from the women's Bible study to give us a proverb. Do you have a proverb for us? Come on up here. Come on. I need that microphone, sweetie. No. Oh, I got a couple of them. Outstanding. Come on up here, girls. Come on. Do you want to stand on the stool or turn around, face, face the people? Turn around. Turn around and face the people. Okay. So, so what you do is you hold this up close to your mouth and say your name. You want to stand on the stool? No, you're not standing on the stool. Okay. Hold the microphone. And let's hear your proverb. Give us your name. Verena. Okay. Mine's Carol. Okay. Give us a proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will. <laughs> and he will. Direct. Direct your path. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay, hold on, hold on a second. I've only got one of Pastor That's Terry's right. perks here. That's okay. But we'll get you, well, 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 we'll get you another one by the time you, you go home today. So thank you. Way to go. So now all the kiddos, way to go, ladies. Have fun. Nice job. Okay, kids, time to go to class. So all of the kids are dismissed. We love our kids. Oh. Boy, talk about under stress. Man. I guess you never know when you might have a chance as a grown-up to um, get an ice cream cone in church. <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> so I want to say one more thing about worship before I launch into the Word today. There was at least one song that I didn't know today and parts of another song that I didn't know today. And, and my tendency sometimes is to just kind of drop out and say, oh, I don't know these songs. I'll wait till the next one, or I don't like this song or whatever. And this is nothing other than, um, I mean, this is not a correction of any sort. It's just a comment that, you know, that's the time to position your heart and say, Lord, I don't have to always have my favorite song up there for me to be in a position of worship. So I get stretched. I just want you to know if there's a new song up there and you're feeling a little bit stretched and maybe even disconnected, you're not alone in that. That's part of the process of being challenged and stretched. That's okay, right? (laughs) It's okay with this half. I don't know about this half, (laughs) but we'll be careful about this half from now on. Okay, today's proverb, today's the 17th. Proverbs 17, 17 is a good one. A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in the time of need. God, as we walk into your word today, I specifically would just ask you to help us with not just our spirit today, but also a little bit our intellect as well. I know, Lord, that you, you really go after, you're concerned more about our heart than our head. But we're going to talk about some things in detail today, God, that just need clarity So I pray that what the Holy Spirit would accomplish would be something of life and hope, but also greater understanding as we walk into something that's maybe a little more complicated today. 
Lord, we know that your word promises that it will never return void, so we just let your, let your word go to work on us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm taking a departure today. I've been in a series about toxic, and today it's Palm Sunday, and I really feel it's important to teach something specific about the history of, of this day. Not because you need a history lesson, but because there is, we're going to talk about something today that I think may be the most powerful and profound prophecy found anywhere in the Word of God, and it relates to today. And uh, it's so powerful that I think that there are a lot of intellectually minded people who are open to God but don't have a relationship with him. And when they understand sometimes things like this, their, their faith just goes click, and they go, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea that God was this specific. Um, so I want to talk about, I'm, I'm going to take a departure. Next week, I'm gonna, go, going to talk about, um, about what makes diff- uh, what we believe different from every other religion in the world. And it's not, it's not a catchphrase, but, but it's, uh, I'm going to talk about why Christianity is different than everything else. And hopefully, if, if you invite people to church, they will hear in a loving way why they ought to open their heart to the Lord. And I promise you, I won't thump on them. Um, we don't do that anyway, but I promise you that I won't embarrass you very much. Okay? <laughs> Just the right amount. And, um, and then, of course, the week after that, I'm going to return back to our series on toxic things. That week after Easter, I'm going to be talking about toxic religion, what it is that turns the world away from Christianity. And that I hope to talk about some next week so that if there are people who are searching, that they realize, oh, maybe I'll come back for another chance here and see if these people are really real, and we'll find out if we really are, because I think we're going to wade into some stuff that day. So that's what's going on. Um, we're part of the Foursquare denomination. I'm actually in the message now, by the way. We're part of the Foursquare denomination. It's kind of a funny name for a denomination. I mean, we're not the Baptists, and we're not, you know, these other, you know, but Foursquare, what does it mean? And uh, if you've ever been in a class or you're a member of the church, then you know that, that we teach four things about Jesus, that he's our Savior, that he's our healer, that he's the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, and he's the soon-coming king. Okay, those four things are what, it's, uh, it's what we call the four-square gospel, and it's not intended to replace the word of God, but it's simply intended to, to state what we want to emphasize, those four aspects about who Jesus is. We, of course, teach the entire counsel of the word of God. But the fourth one, soon-coming king, can be in people's minds this concept that preachers talk about, but it'll never happen in my life. I don't really need to understand it. I don't really understand it even if I need to because it's complicated. You read the book of Revelation and you see things in Daniel and you see things in Matthew 24. I see stuff and it just, it's just a little bit too complicated for me. But I want you to know something. Jesus is coming. So... Let's turn the clocks back a couple thousand years. Or if that doesn't work for you, you can just consider all this stuff about today. Works both ways. Well, we're going to talk about works both ways because Jesus is coming. His triumphal entry occurred on April 6th, 32. 32. (laughs) April 6th, 32. And um, here he was coming into the city on the back of a colt. And we'll read, a, we'll read in the scripture the, the picture of what was going on. But it was April 6th, the year 32. It's a matter of secular fact. It's not in dispute. 
Historians don't disagree. It actually occurred. And I say that because it's written down in the writings of historians, secular historians. April 6, 1932. Our text today, uh, or uh, 032, sorry. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, let's get these facts right if we're going to count on them. Um, okay, we're going to be in the Word of God a lot today. So I hope you brought your Bible, but if you didn't, I'm going to put most of what I'm going to read up. Some of it I'm not going to, but most of it. Luke 19 is where we're going to hang out. And um, so Luke, it's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament. Chapter 19. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, verse 30, Going, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. That's always mystified me, because I'm downtown Seattle, and I see a nice little Porsche. <laughs> I've never sat in it. In fact, maybe somebody sat in it, and I get in it, start it up, start driving. It says, what are you doing? I say, well, I have need of it. I, I don't know that that's going to work. So something of the Holy Spirit is on both ends of this deal, already preparing things in advance. You know, that happens in your life. Do you realize things that the Lord sh- shoves you into, nudges you towards, he's already preparing the other end of the deal? Sometimes the things that you face in life that are really difficult, the challenges, he's already there on the other end. We go into things and we think, oh, I don't know, I'm going to lose my job. What's going to happen? And Jesus is already on the other end going, come on. You can step. Come on, Terry. Take that first step. He's there. Verse 32. So those who were sent, those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And Jesus is coming. And many of the people were already in motion. They didn't know it intellectually, but something of the Spirit had begun to prepare the way. And they were throwing their clothes on the ground and the colt was stepping on the you know and grinding them into the dirt and they didn't care and there were people who were lining it I, I suspect it was mostly the disciples they were getting ready some people were already doing getting their stuff ready others were getting their hearts ready verse 37 then as he was now drawing near the descent of the mount of olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise god by the way that's not 12 people We'll talk about that a little bit more later. And rejoice, uh, praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There wasn't just 12 of them. Um, You can find where the Lord chose from among them 12 who he called apostles. You can find in other places in the word where um, the Lord sent out from among them 70 in groups of two by two. So we're talking about when we say the disciples, there's really not a there's not clarity on the number of people. We don't know. Had to be more than seventy. 
because he chose from among them 70. Who knows? Some people say hundreds. Some people say thousands. Don't really know. I don't know that we can make a statement. But it's not 12 guys and, plus Jesus and a donkey. Okay. It's, it's, it's big enough that they're making a commotion. Now, um, I, think, I, think, I think it's good to note that this is, a, this is not some little hamlet that they're walking into. It's not some little hamlet. I don't know what your picture is about Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, but historians say that the permanent population of the city at about that time was about 80,000. 80, 80,000. So I don't know, what, what's 80,000 around here? It's certainly probably bigger than the Centralia Chehalis community. I don't know what the population is there. It might be the combined population of Olympia, Lacey, Tomwater, not counting outside in the county. 80,000 is a lot of people. That's the normal, I say, permanent population because it would swell up from time to time. During the Passover, when people would migrate there, the numbers of people that would migrate to Jerusalem really swell, it would swell that city. Estimates range from 100,000 to 250,000 people would go to the city. So that city at the time of the Passover, which is what we're talking about here, could have been as many as a third of a million people so th- we're talking about a, a, a lot of people in a city. A lot of people. A third of a million. Jesus is coming. He's coming over the hill. And as he starts the descent, the group around him, are, they're starting to make a commotion. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a big, big group of people, a third of a million there. To be sure, a lot of them had no idea that there was anything even going on. But the commotion was big enough that one translation, or, or, or one, of the, one of the four accounts in the four Gospels talking about this, mentions that the whole city was in commotion. I don't know what it would have taken to do that. They didn't have CNN. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have all the stuff we have. But somehow, words spread quickly. And there's a commotion. Hey, there's something going on up there on the hill. It sure got to the attention of the Pharisees. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The reason is that those, those Pharisees understood the scriptures that were being quoted. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. That whole scripture, they understood what was being said. Verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones immediately would cry out. Imagine that. I've never really thought through was Jesus speaking metaphorically here, or was it literally? Would the rocks actually have started to crack and make noises? I, I imagine. Because when you think about this, um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but you think about this, Jesus, in all, all of the preceding stories that you've read about him, every time that they wanted to declare he was king, he said, no, my time has not yet come. Keep this quiet. Don't tell other people. And now for the first time, all things are different. He is now allowing himself to be presented as Messiah, the king. Anyway, okay, so here we are. I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I would wonder what that would have sounded like, thunderous breaking of the ground. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. There was this consequence for the fact that the people didn't realize what was going to happen that day. Jesus is suggesting that they should have known. They had a way to know. His disciples, who quoted those scriptures, were, or the, the, the Psalms, along the way, 
They, they, had read, they had read the word of God. They knew what was going on. The Pharisees, they knew what was going on. They should have known what the depth of what was going on, and they didn't, and there's a consequence. And Jesus said, now it's going to be hidden from your eyes. I want to go back um, another 500 years earlier than this, and I want to talk to you about this prophecy that I mentioned before. I think it's one of the most amazing, and it's found in the book of Daniel. Now, um, the, um, the Old Testament, to, we call it the Old Testament. If you were a Jewish or Hebrew, you would call it the Tanakh. Um, if you're a student, and you know there are lots of sources out there from, for the Word of God, uh, the Masoretic text uh, or the Tanakh is basically our Old Testament. And that's what, if you're Jewish, is your scripture. Now, at the time of Daniel, which was hundreds of years, 500 years before this, um, the people spoke, um, they spoke Greek. They did not speak, uh, well, ex- let me back up. When da- Daniel gave his prophecy, going, going back to, the, to about the year 285 before Jesus, so about 300 years before Jesus, the people were all speaking Greek. It'd be like, we were all speaking English, and there was no English translation of the Bible, only Latin. Okay? And so um, you would just come to church, and somebody would tell you what it says, but you would have no way of studying your own scripture. That's foreign to you and me, because you probably have a lot of translations at home. You probably got lots of them. There's probably one on top of your TV holding up a vase to keep the TV from getting a water spot on the top. Probably not anymore, because TVs are only this thin now, but... You have lots of translations of the English Bible. And if you don't have them at home, they're all over the... I mean, they're everywhere. The English version of, our, of the scripture is easy to find. It wasn't true for them. And so in about 300 years before Jesus, um, they thought, okay, this isn't good. Um, the, the scriptures at that point were written in Hebrew, and the people spoke Greek for the most part. And unless you were a, a student... Um, or a, like a, a scholar or a theologian, you didn't, you didn't know how to, to read or speak Hebrew. So you couldn't read your own scriptures. So what they did in the, in, uh, in the year 285 BC, about 70 scholars got together in Alexandria. And they said, okay, let's translate this into Greek. And they spent about 15 years doing it. And they translated the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Now, um, if you look in the margins of your Bible that you have, it might tell you what the source texts were from which it was translated into English. Um, one of the primary ones is something called the Septuagint. It's a big word. You don't need to remember it, but it's basically a fancy word for the number 70. And that's a reference to those 70 scholars 300 years before Jesus who translated it. I go through all that to explain this to you, that the book of Daniel has prophecies that are so specific, and the fact that they come true is so fantastic that some scholars today claim that Daniel, the book of Daniel, and they post-date it. They want to say, well, it was actually written way after all this stuff happened. It's so accurate, it couldn't possibly have happened beforehand. So they post-date it. But I want to say it's a matter of secular fact. It was translated along with the entire rest of the Tanakh, the entire rest of the, the Old Testament, into, um, into Greek, which was the common language of the day, 300 years before Jesus. That's the background. Okay, took a long time to do that, but I wanted you to know, in case you ever get that objection, that you could say, oh, wait a minute, you can't fool me, I know, I know better than that. I've been taught in my church, I know better than that, right? <laughs> okay, so here's Daniel, we're in chapter 9, and uh, I'm going to get a slide up, I'm going to start a little bit ahead of what the slide has, so I'm going to start reading in verse 20, and here's Daniel. 
Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me, and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. A couple of things I want to tell you about this. He starts out by saying, the sin of my people Israel. This this prophecy is being directed at the nation of Israel. Okay, it's not directed at the church. It's directed at the nation of Israel. Here's something else about Gabriel. I, I can only find three angels in the word of God who are named. We get their names. Um, Gabriel. Michael, and then Lucifer, who fell. Now, um, here's something else about them. Just, this, is, this is just kind of an extra freebie for today. Gabriel always, every time you see him, he's bringing some sort of messianic pronunciation. It's always something messianic that he's sharing. Something about, here comes Jesus, here comes the Savior, here comes the Prince, okay? Michael always shows up, and he's a military commander. It's always something, a military commander in, in the place of, of um, the, you know, something he's going to do in behalf of the armies of Israel or whatever. So that's Michael. And then you know the other, the other who's the enemy of our soul. And um, so I don't need to go into that. So, okay, so Gabriel has come and said, I'm going to tell you some stuff. You're going to have some understanding. And this is an answer to your prayer. Okay, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks. Oh, let me wait a second before I start there. This, this next passage, a lot of times when Christians read it, they just kind of go, okay, give up. This is too complicated. And it is complicated. But by the time we get finished in just a little while, it's not going to be so complicated anymore. You're going to understand it. And I think it's important that you do. So I'm going to read it and then I'll unpack it. So just go with me as we read it. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city again addressing the nation of Israel, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And, uh, okay, so I'm just going to stop there and back up and unpack this. Okay, first off, you and I, the first thing we say, 70 weeks are determined. And we think that means a little over a year. But it's not. If I say to you, um, if I say to you, uh, we're going to do a, a, a census every decade, I don't have to say 10 years because you understand that the word decade means 10 years. Okay. This, this word, 70 weeks, is actually 70 Shabua. And what the word Shabua literally translates to is sevened. And what it meant in their culture and in their context was a group of seven years. So substitute the word, instead of weeks or instead of decades, you should think of seven years. So 70 periods of seven years each. Follow me so far? Don't mean to take you into a math class, but 
It's important that you understand it's not weeks like you and I think. It's a week here is the same as seven years. Complicated. Okay, Shabua. For you, your people and for your holy city. We talked about what that meant. And then the, the, he lists those 70 weeks are assigned to accomplish a list of things. Here's what the list of things are. To finish the transgression. Is that done yet? I don't, I don't think, I think people are still transgressing, so I don't think that's done. To make an end of sins. I don't think that's stopped yet. People are still sinning, so that's not accomplished to make reconciliation for iniquity. I think that was accomplished on the cross. So I'll go with that. I, 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 okay, I think maybe that one's been accomplished. You can make a case for it anyway. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's not here yet. To seal up vision and prophecy, that's not done yet. And to anoint the most holy, I don't think that Jesus is on his throne yet. Know therefore and understand. Okay, so that list, 70 weeks are appointed and it's to accomplish these things. They're not all done yet. I point that out to you because you need to know the 70 weeks is not done yet. All right. Then uh, um, he, he calls him until Messiah, the prince. Um, and the prince, I, I want to clear something for you on that as well. The word prince here actually means chief ruler. It's not like junior monarch. It's, he's not junior monarch. But he is here, the Mashiach Nagid, which is the anointed King is what that name actually is. And it says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Daniel is, this is a time when the nation of Israel is captive in Babylon. And he's wondering, when are we going to be freed up? And Daniel says, well, I'm not going to tell you that, but I'm going to tell you this. When the proclamation is given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem the city, start counting. Because 70 weeks later, the Messiah is going to come upon the scene. That's what that statement says. This is an absolutely mathematical prophecy. Mathematical. You can calculate it out. Once the command is given, start counting. And you know the exact day the Messiah will present himself. That's what Gabriel proclaims and announces to Daniel. That makes this such an amazing prophecy. It's not someday in the by and by. Here's the start point. Here's the length of time. Here's what will happen at the other end. Verifiable, measurable, understandable. And then it goes on to say, um, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. That word cut off, karat, actually is translated properly, executed. The Messiah shall be put to death, the death penalty. Here's what Daniel is saying. Do you see how specific the word is being, is actually being given. So it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commander, store and build, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so let's translate this. I'm going to try and get you through the math part of this quickly, but I want you to see it because I've calculated it, and you can do the same thing. So seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69, that's a total of 69, you degree, 62 and 7, right? Okay. So it's 69 weeks times 7 years is a week. Can you put that next one up? Oh, I skipped over that. Keep going. I need some help here from my slides. There we go. So now we have, we're going to try and figure out how we calculate that out. 69 um, weeks times a week is 7 years, so it's 483 years. 
okay? Now, to understand, leave that up there for just a minute. To understand the prophecy today, you've got to, um, you've got to be able to overcome two challenges. I'm going to point out to you, you'll notice that, the, that I have the 483 years, and then I'm multiplying a year times 360 days to get the total number of days, okay? So um, the reason for that is that all ancient calendars were 360-day years, all of them that I've been able to find. Um, you can go ahead and get with me. Um, all of them. The Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, the Hebrews. Here's my list. Persians, Greeks, Phoenicians, Chinese, the Mayans, the Hindus, the Carthaginians, the Etruscans, the Teutons. There may have been other ones, but they all used a 360-day year. So you have to be able to translate from the ancient calendars into the way we think, so into the number of days. So they started with a 360-day year. And, um, you know, and by the way, that's how come the Babylonian process of 360, that's how we get 360 degrees in a circle and 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds. That all came from that same process. But then in about 701 B.C., um, uh, a king in, uh, in, um, in Rome decided, oh, this is a little bit wrong. His scientists must have talked to him. We need 365 days in a year. At about that same time, King Hezekiah, th- the, their scientists were going, this doesn't really work. We need to make an adjustment. And he also added leap years. Now, the, the, uh, the leap years wasn't the nice, clean process that we have now, which still isn't so clean. Um, they added a month, each Jewish leap year, on a cycle of seven out of every 19 years. Okay, we're not going to go through the mechanics on that, so you can relax. But the point is that they knew something. Okay, the point the point is that they knew that it was close to 365, but not exact, because um, they could just tell over time things. They would take their measurements, and it would still get off. So it was different than exactly 365. So. So here we are. I'm going to skip those mechanics. So the first thing you've got to be able to do is translate from their calendar system to ours. The second thing you've got to know is when was the command given? How do you know when the command was given? Because that's when you start the count. Okay, there are four commands given that I can find in Scripture. Um, Three of them you find in the book of Ezra. The nation of Israel is captive and first one comes from uh, King Cyrus, was, and you find it in Ezra 1. And the command that was given there was to go back and rebuild part of the temple. Second one is Darius, and that's in Ezra 6. Same thing. He gave them permission to go back and restore parts of the temple and the temple worship. Didn't release the people. Didn't say go rebuild the city. The third one comes from King Artaxerxes, and we're getting closer now. He gives them permission to go back and rebuild the temple and to set up some forms of government. But in this context, a city that was unfortified wasn't, wouldn't last for long. People would come in and pillage from around the outside. It was a, this was, these were all, I don't know if it was intentionally um, to, to frustrate the nation of Israel, but they were all not the full deal because it, it, you just couldn't establish the, 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 the temple worship and the government because people would come in from the outside. So finally, you get to Artaxerxes, Longimanus, and um, Nehemiah was the one. You'll find this in Nehemiah, the first couple of books there, particularly the second chapter. You'll find that he finally got permission not only to rebuild the temple, but to rebuild the city and its walls. If you've ever studied the book of Nehemiah, you know all the stories about things that were going on in the walls. They rebuilt the city. That was the only other proclamation, and that's the one. And you can actually go back and calculate when that happened. Historians amazingly, have some of that in- kind of information. And they found out that Artaxerxes Longimanus made the proclamation on March 14th, 445 B.C. 
specific date. Okay, so now we know how to translate the, 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 the calendars and we know the exact date. We should be able to count forward and know that the Messiah, the, the Messiah, the, the, the king, the anointed one, is going to show up. So what do we do? We calculate. Can we put that one up, Debbie? Did I get ahead of you again? Oh, by the way, I've been, this little d- number is in the bottom down there. I want you to remember that's the number we're looking for. Because if the prophecy is correct, that's where we should be. Okay, so here's the math. From 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., remember I told you the day that Jesus wrote in? That's a matter of historical fact. 476 years, we have 365 days in a year, so you multiply them out, and there's your number, 173,000. But it wasn't the dates, there was a difference between the two proclamations, 24 days of difference. And then when you go through the mechanics, you'll find that you have to add 116 days for leap years. And there's your answer, 173,880 days. The exact number of days to the day that Gabriel told Daniel from the moment the proclamation goes out until Messiah the Prince, it'll be 173,880 days. Gabriel's margin of error? Zero. Zero. Now, now back up and think through. Jesus said, you should have known. He said, this was your day. You should have known, particularly the religious leaders. They bury themselves in, in the scripture. They, they, they venerated Daniel as a prophet from God. They should have understood, okay, here's the proclamation, and they should have been able to count. They should have had the city ready to receive that day. And up to that day, where, where's Jesus? I said before, he, he had many times people had said, oh, oh, this is wonderful. Would you be the king? And he'd say, no, my time has not yet come. And it might have been just a, just a minor distinction, days, hours, weeks, who knows? But he wouldn't let it happen until that day. And then when the day came, not only did he allow it, he engineered it. Hey, go get a colt, set this up. We're going to go into the city. Now, I su- suggest this to you. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, somebody else arrived that day. Somebody else entered the city. Some other Messiah showed up, but, he doesn't sh- but there's, there's no recorded history of anybody else making it. He is the one. He is the one. You find the triumphal entry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all four of the Gospels exactly to the day. Those people who would say that he never proclaimed himself to be God, they just don't understand Scripture because this day the, he presented himself as the anointed king. There's no question about it. Anyway, back to our text. Luke 19 is where we left off. I'm going to back up just a verse or two. Luke 19, uh, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Two places that I can think of offhand where the Lord cried. Here and when he was about to pull Lazarus from glory back to the earth. And I think that's why he cried with Lazarus too. It's just my opinion. He wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you, with, within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
He expected them to be looking and waiting. That's why he wept. And when he said, if you had known the things that make for your peace, the things that make for your peace today, the things that make for your peace, it's the coming of Jesus that makes for your peace. And if you had known, and if you will know when the day comes, the things that make for your peace, your eyes will be open. Jesus says, for the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you with your children to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another. 37 years later, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. 37 years. And that was a war that lasted a little over a year, a little less than two years. And um, Titus Vespasian, a Roman guide with the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions, laid siege. Some historians say that when the siege was over, that 1.1 million people lost their lives there. Now, I don't know. That's a lot bigger than the, than the Jerusalem we just talked about, but I think at that point, things had kind of circled down and more and more people had gone to Jerusalem for protection. And the siege lasted for a little under two years and a lot of people starved and a lot of people were slaughtered. 1.1 million, that's from Josephus, a secular historian. And here's the story that happened in there. As the, as the Romans went in, one of the soldiers threw a torch through the temple window. Now, the temple had, I th- the walls were covered, it was, they were wooden, but the walls were actually covered in gold. But the place burned down. Titus Vespasian was very angry for a couple of reasons. One, he wanted the, he wanted the temple because it's a trophy. Secondly, he wanted the gold. Well, the wood burns, the gold melts. Somewhere in the heap is the gold. He ordered his soldiers, also a matter of secular fact, he ordered the soldiers to go in there and take the temple apart, stone by stone, and not a single stone was left unturned so that they could dig that gold out. Jesus' margin of error? <laughs> zero. Another prophecy given from God, and the margin of error is zero. Zero. Gabriel had given Daniel the exact date, and the people didn't seem to care enough to be ready and to be looking. And he held them accountable for that. Jesus is coming. He's coming again. And um, I've scratched the surface about the second coming of Jesus today. I want to take a minute and read a passage out of Matthew 24, which I don't, I, I don't have it up because it's lengthy. And um, then we're going to close. Today is Palm Sunday. This week, we'll be mindful of the price the Lord paid. By Matthew 24 is where you're headed, um, if you're looking. We're, we're, we're going to be mindful of the price that the Lord paid, and next Sunday, we're going to celebrate for the victory he had over the grave. It's the biggest day of our year. It is the biggest day of our year. The biggest day of our year. And we just want to make huge traction for the kingdom that day. And I'm looking forward to it. There was, um, let me set this up, Matthew 24. There was a, um, Jesus had been doing a lot of teaching and um, he made a comment about some things future. And four of the disciples went to him privately and said, hey, 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 could you explain this thing about, about what's going to happen, your future coming? And so um, he, he took aside Peter, James, um, John, and Andrew, and um, starting in verse 3, 
Let's just find out what he has to say. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You know, I was thinking about this when I was studying. I go on rabbit trails in my office like you could never believe. But if you Google, this will be interesting to you. If you Google the phrase, people who claim to be Jesus Christ, the list is huge. I mean, there was a guy in the early 1900s from Walla Walla. Did you know that? I didn't know that one. I'm pretty sure Jesus is not going to show up in Walla Walla first. Nothing wrong with Walla Walla. But like lightning and thunder, it's going to be probably everywhere. Anyway, six. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We're in those days. We're in those days today, and Jesus is coming. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various regions. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Boy, this sounds horrible. It can all be escaped, by the way. Then many prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, by the way, that was right where we were reading today. Here is Jesus now authenticating Daniel. Remember the guys who post-date, late-date Daniel? Here is Jesus saying and quoting from that very scripture. So he kind of gives us a, a shortcut to authentication here. You don't have to do all the other study. And then he goes on to say, whoever reads, the, reads, let him understand. Whoever reads. You're reading now? This passage is not meant for theologians, experts, and pastors. It's meant for you. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Mind you, he's talking to the nation here. He's not talking to you. This is not to the church. I'll have to teach on this another time, okay? Um, Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Make a comment about that. I want you to rest at ease about this passage, if possible. This, this is telling you that it's, if it was possible for you to prepare yourself intellectually for this, you could do that. But you can't prepare you. This is not going to be an intellectual attack. This is going to be spiritual. You have to be prepared spiritually. You have to find yourself in, in relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, who will guide you and direct you. Then 
For, he'll protect those who are with him. He will. Okay. So back to uh, 25. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, and, and, or do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Drop down to verse 32. Now then, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, earthquakes, famines, when you see all those things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, which will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Remember that verse. No man knows the day or the hour. When you hear people tell you, God, Jesus is coming back and it'll be on XYZ date. At that moment, your little radar should be clicking on and your little force field should come up and you should be going, okay, time for an oil change. My filter just completely jammed up. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Okay? When you hear somebody predict the day, I mean, Major world religions, the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the date, and it came and went, and they fixed the date, and it came and went. Joseph Smith, I mean, there are lots of them. You heard about people down in California who are waiting for a flying saucer to pick them up on a specific day. People follow these kinds of things. When you hear a date, when you hear a date proclaimed, you can say right right then that this is not from God. Okay. Not from God. And um, I just want to take you back to that one verse, verse 15. Whoever reads, let him understand and remind you that this is, not, this is not for somebody else to understand. This is something for you to understand. Why doesn't God tell us that date? Well, you know, a, a, a skeptic would say, well, he did that once and they didn't pay attention the first time. The truth is, I don't think it's good for me to know the date. It's just not good for me to know the date. If I knew the date, my flesh would say, hey, party time. I got plenty of time to fix stuff later. (laughs) You know me, huh? Okay. (laughs) And um, it's just not good for us to know the date. I think, think, you know, the risks are that God would tell me the date and I would ignore it like they did or whatever. The point is that for you and me, it's better that we just don't know the date. I think, why does God not... Why, does not he, why doesn't he tell us the date? Those are the logical reasons, but the truest reason is love. It's what's good for you and me to not know that date. But it's good for us to know that there is a date. Every single time a person opens their heart to the Lord, there's a number. When you read through the Revelation and when you read through and understand Thessalonians and all these end times things, you will realize that there is a number. And when the last soul comes into the kingdom, it's like, click. It's going to be like the cylinders of a lock are going to come into place, and it's going to go, click. And Jesus is going to show up. And every single time a person opens their heart to the Lord and says, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you. I realize it. My life is a mess. Would you fix it for me? I'll follow you. Every time that happens... I can just picture the enemy of our soul going, oh, is this it? Is this the one? Because things get 
significantly worse at that end of the spectrum. Jesus is coming. I don't know what you're facing today or tomorrow, but Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I want to pray, and then we'll close the service. So would you just agree with me? I've gone a little long, so I'm going to hustle along here. God, today, um, help us be people who are like the fig tree. We understand it, God, that when it starts to bloom, we know that soon springtime is coming. God, this can be confusing to us intellectually. And there is so much information about things that are going on around the world that seem to fit into this category. Help us to see you, Lord. Help us to not be like the ones who should have known. Help us instead to be the ones who read and understand. So God, as we choose to walk into this pathway, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be understanders and people who can understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you rise to your feet? We're going to sing. Careful, it's been a long time sitting. Nobody fall down. I sprung that on you. I got a little bit ahead of you, didn't I? I'm going to read something to you, which I was going to do after the song. So this is not costing you any extra time. (laughs) Here's where we started. Open to me the gates of righteousness. This is the psalm that they were quoting from as he entered the city. I will go through those gates. Open the gates to me, God. I'll go through your gate. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. That's Jesus. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When you hear that phrase from now on, think about Palm Sunday. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is, our, is the Lord. He has given us, uh, given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. <laughs>